Welcome to Collaboration RA. This podcast is dedicated to our profession, allowing us to share who we are, what we bring to the field of radiology, and how we care for the patients we serve. We look forward to hearing from you. Find us on our website at www.collaborationra.com. We appreciate you listening, and we're glad you're here. Now let's collaborate. Welcome to this episode of Collaboration RA. I'm Reese, and I have another host with me, Marceline. Hey, everybody. All right. So on this episode, we actually do not have a guest host with us. It's just me and Marceline together again. And I'm excited. We've been saying for, we've been doing this for a year now, Reese. I think we have both said several times we wanted to just find time that it was just kind of just us two. And so... We carved away a little bit of time, a little bit of us time. <laughs> well, now that we're one-on-one, we can actually go back and update our listeners as far as like the things we've learned about this podcast, what we've learned along the way during the process. And I'm glad that we brought our listeners along for the ride. Marceline and I obviously talk a lot behind the scenes of what goes into Collaboration RA podcast. You know, it's been fabulous having all these people that want to come forward and that want to share their stories. And it's extremely exciting. Whenever we started this process a year and a half ago, we really didn't expect it to take off. So that was kind of the nice part about it It was really unexpected. And then it just kind of grew and populated from there. And I've been really excited to do that with you and to share the same space with you to grow that friendship with you, especially in a direction that I didn't anticipate to. I mean, if you love radiology enough that whenever you get to hang out with other radiology people, obviously somewhere along the time frame, you're going to talk about work stuff. You're going to talk shop. Personally speaking, my significant other who does not work in healthcare at all, absolutely despises when I talk shop with my friends. This is a nice safe space for me personally to get that out there. I just came back from uh, the SRPE conference in Las Vegas. And that was a couple of weeks ago at this point now. And I got to see a lot of people. I got to meet a lot of people. A lot of them had already been on previous episodes, which you have, if you haven't listened already, go check all of our episodes out. They're all great. But meeting in person just reinforces the fact that I want to keep doing this. And mm-hmm. I want to keep bringing new people in to the fold, essentially. is like, this is exciting. I've met some fantastic people along the way. I've networked a lot. I've met some great connections. And now I can go to these people for advice based upon what they're doing, what specialty they are, whatever. That not only makes me better as an RA, trying to, you know, take better care of my patients, but also better as a person because I'm trying to share what I'm learning, whether you've been doing it for 17 years, like Marceline, (laughs) or you're just fresh out of school. You know, I feel like there's always something new you can learn no matter where you're at in your professional career. For example, Tuesday. I was doing lumbar puncture. I've done lots and lots and lots of these. I wrote a paper on it. It's been published and I was having issues and I wasn't afraid to stop, look at the radiologist who was in the room with me, you know, say, hey, this is what the issue I'm having. Do you have any recommendations? And he goes, let me show you something. And he put on some sterile gloves and he actually didn't touch the needle uh, that I was directing at all, but he actually shifted the patient's soft tissues. And he goes, I learned this from a fellow a while back. And he just kind of moved the tissues around. And without touching the needle, he was able to redirect the trajectory of it. 
He said, try that method and then advance your needle and you'll get it. So sure enough, I moved the soft tissues around. I was able to advance the needle and it worked. I've been doing this a while now since 2017. Started in 2015 you know, with my clinicals. And I was like, I've never been taught anything like that. I was like, okay, cool. So now I have that tool in my, in my toolbox that I can utilize to not only better myself whenever I'm having issues in that kind of similar scenario, but I can teach that to other RA students or radiology residents that are trying to pick up the same skill set that I currently have. So I learned something new on Tuesday. Throughout this entire process and going back to kind of the podcast and where we talked about that and the learning from that, I know that I think that we're kind of in this bubble. I've always felt that, you know, we're in radiology, you work in a hospital, you work in the department. You know that these other entities are there, you know, that people go into them. We see sales reps all the time. We know that some of them are former radiologic technologists. We know some of them work in MRI, they're application specialists. But I don't think I realized or recognized the avenues and the needs to have that education to fill those. So that for me was really eye-opening that yes, I knew they existed, but to what capacity did I really pay attention to it? And until we did the podcast, I don't think that I did. The other one with the legislator and learning that that is an avenue that we can go into never crossed my mind. You know, so that was just baffling to me that this is my passion. I love it. I have the opportunity to do that as well, too. So I look at those things and I look at that advancement. In terms of learning, you know, off the top of my head, I can think of so many things that people have taught me along the way. Some of the most amazing teachers that I had in learning fluoroscopy were some of the technologists who had been doing it for years. You know, we talk about all the time those seasoned technologists. Learning from them was one of hands down the best experiences that I think that I had. And I think the reason for that is I learned from the radiologists the components that I needed to from that aspect of things, what you're looking at, having that in-depth understanding of that. But the technologists and teaching me that positioning and that in-depth of learning, because they had been doing it like an RA for so many years, the capacity that I learned from them was so different than I had gotten anywhere else. And I think that was one, the best move I ever made, the best friendships that I ever made, and some of the best learning I got from technologists and radiologists together. That to me was really encouraging. And I think that was also what inspired us to kind of come on and talk today. These people who are coming out of their educational process that they can take with them and understand that we learn from others along the way too. Yeah. And I know that any technologist, whether they've been doing it 30 years or they've been doing it three years, if they are paying attention and looking at the images that we're saving and capturing at specific moments in time during any fluoroscopic case, if they're very curious, which a lot of them are, they'll come back and ask me, hey, why did you do this? What are you looking at? What is that? If they've been doing it for a while, they know they can start to determine what's normal, and what's not normal. And they start pointing and asking questions. And I'll share. That's exactly what I was looking at. And I'm glad you caught it. And that's why we had to sit there and make sure we get some really good pictures of that area because that's not normal. I was very fortunate to have trained at a facility that had a very dedicated fluoro unit. They had three different rooms and they ran them all day. And there was one of the techs there who'd been doing it for 32 years. And being able to watch him and ask him questions and his reasoning why, because he's been doing it for so long, 
always told him, I was like, you take the best overheads. And he goes, oh yeah, all you got to do is just make sure you got, you know, central ray placement, you're collimating. And he goes, I'll tell you why my pictures are better than the rest, because I take the extra time to make sure we do it the way it's supposed to. You don't just sit there, open your collimators wide open 100% and just blast away and then window your technique. He said, you sit there and you set your technique and you do it right and you get better pictures because of it. Being able to take what I learned from him and start applying it into my own fluoroscopic practice, magging in when I need to, collimating to keep everything in the field of view. I don't need to see three inches outside, you know, the posterior spine, you know, the black space on my image when I don't need it. Collimate, clean up your image, actually have the patient hold their breath. That's a great technique to use. That'll reduce motion, it'll clean up your image. Being able to take these little tips and tricks that we've learned both as a technologist as well as our experience as an RA and being able to apply it, I guarantee you the radiologists are going to know, hey, you know what you're doing. These pictures are great. Word of caution, I would remind them to breathe. <laughs> yes, always remind them. But, you know, trying to keep all these factors in your head in the forefront of your thought process is a lot. And the only way you can really get better at maintaining low fluoro times, fewer repeats, decrease your frame rates and stuff like that. I know we're not that far off in age. I know that you joke about my gray hair, but when I was a technologist, it was extremely important that I got all of the anatomy. If I clipped it, I knew it. And you got praised really well, but you also got really hard when you didn't achieve what the radiologist expectations were. And it's not that they were over us. It's not that they had any control over hiring and firing us. It was a respect thing. It was working together. It was that I wanted to be a good technologist. It's that I wanted to go out and I wanted to achieve success in my career. Not only that, I went to education to be able to do all of this. The one that I learned the most from was we had a patient. I was fairly early on in my career and I was doing an x-ray, an abdominal acute series. You know, you're just starting out and you're so young. And whenever I shot that x-ray, my radiologist came to me and said, Marceline, what was his surgical history? And back then, just like we do now, ask all my patients even for normal x-ray. You know, have you had any surgery recently? Have you had any nausea, vomiting, diarrhea? Kind of what are your symptoms? And then we would write a little note, like a little tiny paragraph of what the patient's symptoms were, what they've had done, what their surgical history was. There was no surgical history on it other than he had had a colonoscopy earlier that day. So the radiologist said, you know, Marceline, did he go in and did he have anything done laparoscopic? And I'm like, no, he told me that was all he had done. And of course, that's when I learned about perforations and seeing that free air. That was one of the pivotal moments in my career that I learned about free air and kind of learning about those things in our profession. I don't think as technologists, you necessarily home in. in. I know that you and I have had a lot of personal conversations. And when I went into this industry, the whole reason I chose the RA was one, because I had learned about that. And two, when my grandfather was sick after open heart surgery and he got toxic megacolon, seeing that free air in his abdomen and knowing it was an emergency and the technologist that was there in the overnight not knowing, you know, he passed away shortly after. Being able to teach that to our individuals that work within our industry and finding that passion still every day in that, one, when I learned it from my radiologist, but two, when I learned it from personal experience. And it carries over in everything that we do. 
And I know that you feel the same way, which is one of the reasons I love working with you and doing this podcast. The other thing too, is we work pretty similar because we do a lot of the things pretty much the same in Flora without training each other. (laughs) Right. The same steps. I've had the opportunity of being observed and taught by different radiologists from different backgrounds, not only here in the States, but also from across the pond and other countries uh, that have come. And there was this Egyptian radiologist who was really good at fluoro. And this is what he used whenever he was trying to find things out on the study. I would take that trick and I'd roll with it. I just kind of cherry picked the little golden nuggets from different radiologists that I'd come along with on my career path. I'm going to start using this, really works well for me. And this aspect from this study, and I'm going to take that with me. And being able to hone and perfect my technique and being able to share that with others, there's 10 different ways to do this. I've tried most. This is what works for me. But along your career path, you're going to find what works best for you. And you're going to perfect that as well. And I hope that you take that and, and share it with the, you know whoever comes after you. Because that's how I was trained. Like being able to do a lumbar puncture with a 27-gauge Whitaker needle, my mentor, he was, I don't know where you're going to end up. And I don't know if you're going to be using atraumatic needle variants, but I want you to know how to use them. And so once he thought I was proficient in using the traumatic spinal needle, and he goes, okay, from here on out, no more spinal needles. You're using Whitakers, which I don't know if there's any other listeners out there using the Whitaker mm-hmm. needles right now. It's a different ball game because you can't direct them as easy. It is very hard to correct that needle trajectory once it's down in the deep tissues. I've had, what, a few RA students underneath me at this point. I hope that I can continue to share the knowledge that I've gained. I've been doing this a while now. You know, I think what makes us a little bit more unique than other individuals who go into radiology that don't have the background that the RAs do, what makes us unique is that we kind of started all the way from being an x-ray student, starting in the fluoroscopy rooms, setting the rooms up, getting the contrast ready, learning about the different contrasts, to moving up to performing with the technologist as we learn in that educational process. And then eventually we graduated and we ran our own fluoro rooms as a technologist. Then we went through the RA program and we started performing alongside our radiologist as a student, also still learning from the technologists that are with us, like we talked about earlier, but also getting that advice and tips and tricks from the radiologists. And so developing us as a whole and then coming in now and doing them how we do them now. And so I think just kind of sharing on some of the tidbits that we've picked up, you and I are lucky that we work in a place that is a lot of modify, (laughs) you know, and so I know that we've learned a lot. What has been one of your one thing that you've kind of brought to this process, learned in it? And then what is something that you find a value in that we do it? So a good example of something I learned is that every hospital has different protocols and policies. The main takeaway, the big takeaway for me was that the speech therapist can make recommendations that are vastly different depending on which facility you're at. You know, a patient aspirated thin, they went back and aspirated nectar, they went back and tried a honey trial and they aspirated honey. And I thought, okay, game over. Come to find out, there is such a thing called a pudding diet, meaning you only eat foods or liquids thickened to a pudding puree, whatever you call it. But when it comes to modifieds, especially the traumatic ones, 
Let's do right by the patient. Let's do this safely. Let's get some water-soluble contrast in here. You know, pulling out the thicken up and start mixing everything so that we can do it safely. And that's just experience. We do a lot of trauma and we do see a lot of leaks. You know, they think that they're really straightforward and that they can be boring and repetitious. But the thing is, we see things every day that are completely unexpected. I always kind of think to myself, the importance of it is, is one, you're helping them on the pudding diet to continue to keep that functioning swallow and to be able to work on it. So you're allowing them to start getting somewhat back to a normal life or at least progressing in that direction. And then two, they're never straightforward. If you're paying attention, they're never straightforward. That's what I love about modified barium swallows. And I love the team of speech pathologists that we work with. They are amazing. They're always willing to teach and feel valued and respected, which is maybe why they're so willing to. But I think we got a really good team with them. Yeah, absolutely. Because they really care about their patients. I mean, obviously, they want to try to advance their diet to be as normal as possible. And the yep. recovery starts right then and there. So if we can help them in that pathway by just checking out, make sure it's safe for them to swallow, let's do it. I will echo you on your saying that a lot of technologists get stuck in the fact it's very monotonous as a technologist. But to that patient, they're nervous. It's the one thing they've been looking forward to for three days to see if they can start eating and drinking a bit. The families count on it too. Yeah. We've progressed from modifieds. Now we're into barium swallows. Moving down the pipe. <laughs> <laughs> Literally. I think for me, one of the most interesting things that I noticed, I know that during COVID, they weren't doing endoscopies quite as much. I saw a lot more of my abnormal barium swallows in looking at them and sitting with the radiologist and visiting and determining that this was most likely something that needed to be emergently looked at per my radiologist. And knowing that there was that mucosal difference. And then later following up with the pathology reports, that was one of the things that I noticed that I have a lot more of that I did not see prior. It was very rare, actually, to see that. Did you see that a lot too during COVID? The GI team looked at the upper endoscopy as an aerosolizing procedure, and therefore mm -hmm. they stopped all of it, unless it interfered with plan of care of treatment plans for cancer type of patients. Did notice an uptake of abnormal findings on esophagrams as well as upper GIs because they were just not doing those elective procedures anymore. Mm -hmm. I think the other thing that I learned, well, and I knew this and we would do it, but sparingly, but one of the things that you taught me, I knew that IsoView or Omnipake obviously showed us things better, but I had always thought that the cost effectiveness maybe was not there. So now we use that for all of our studies that are looking for leaks and being able to see them was yeah. a more cost effective way, but yet still seeing what we needed to in a more enhanced way. Yeah. And if there's a faint pinhole leak somewhere, you could very easily miss it. And they may not have gotten scope. We're keeping it diagnostic. You know, it's a skill. It's a technique. It's an art form. There's a lot of reasons to do them. Could be reflux, could be hiatal hernia, peptic ulcer disease, gastroparesis. Fobulus. Uh, abdominal pain. Pyloric stenosis. Bezoars. Duodenal ulcer. Uh, gastritis, duodenitis, inflammation of unknown etiology. Abnormal findings on prior exam. I just come out and say it. What's the abnormal finding? Let me know. Help me help you. There's a, a million reasons to do it, right? That double contrast is so beautiful. I mean, there is nothing prettier than a really good upper GI or a BE. 
I mean, those are just beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> the other important thing that I think a lot of people take for granted when doing upper GIs that I did not know as a technologist. And I think it took me actually doing pediatrics to fully understand finding that ligament atrites, being able to see that definitive, yes, my patient is perfectly AP, that yes, that small bowel crosses that midline. And if it does not, is there a CT of the abdomen and pelvis that shows that it does? You know, is there something that tells us that there's no possibility of what they call malrotation? Because that malrotation can later turn it into ovulus. You know, your small intestine is no longer fixed to where it should be. Pediatrics really taught me that and having that pediatric training and learning yeah. and understanding. You know, I knew it was supposed to happen. You just see that C loop. But beyond that, I didn't really know. That was really what I learned in the process of becoming an RA and going through the educational process mm -hmm. that was different from the RT. Mm -hmm. Nowadays, the fluoro unit and the overheads are one in the same x-ray tube. Technologists aren't obtaining overheads for an upper GI because we can do it at the same time while we're getting our fluoroscopic images, transitioning that barium through the stomach, moving it inferior, moving it lateral, moving it superior, moving it inferior, upright, D-cubes. That's the other thing as an RA you have to think about is you maybe have five swallows before the stomach starts getting too full of contrast. And you won't be able to move it around as well because there's so much in there and you won't be able to get good shots of gastric mucosa. I always uh, do an AP and then an LPO view because you transition that spine off the, the, you know, the esophageal lumen. You get better mucosal shots of it especially, but you want to watch the mucosal shot. I don't care about focusing on that big brick of contrast bolus. You want to look at what's above it. You want to look at the tissue, the mucosa of the esophagus once you lay them horizontal you do your esophageal motility check. You're going to have them sip that thin barium like it's going out of style. One, two, three sips maybe, if that's what it takes to get that single contrast esophagram. But being able to keep in mind, don't have them drink too much. I got to move quick because they're going to start emptying quick. I usually lay them down in a left lateral position to keep contrast in the dependent portion of the stomach, aka the fundus, once you lay them down flat before I have them long roll. Because if you lay them down super, Fine. Contrast can still empty through the pylorus. There's a thought process behind laying them down in a left lateral position because it slows down emptying of contrast into the small bowel, which can superimpose gastric mucosa. So that's so, where you and I are different. Yeah. Because uh -huh. I did the other way. So I feel it buys me a little bit of time to lay them down, lay them down in a left lateral position, do a full log roll, and then start taking your dedicated stomach shots. Tell the patient, hold the breath, take their exposure, single shot. Reposition the patient, floor again, check your position, hold the breath, single shot. Making sure you get good shots of the duodenum along the way. Sometimes if you roll them back again, you can get a nice double contrast duodenum as well. You know what's normal, you know what's not normal. Marceline, how, how do you do upper GIs? No, I do them pretty much the same way. I do my AP, I do my LPO. I like to watch it empty. I like to see that that gastroesophageal junction opens up. I also do a right lateral. Sometimes I'll do RPO, just depending on possible esophageal webs to make sure that there's no vascular pressure on the esophagus, any markings on there that shouldn't be, any indentations, things like that. And then I lay them down. The difference is I lay them down supine. And the reason I do that is I've felt that, at least for me, um, and it's probably just personal preference, I like some of that to empty out. I like to be able to see 
the duodenal sweep first. Not necessarily always. I like to get a little bit of it at least into that area so that I get a really good bulb shot and then I can get a really good C shot. But that's probably the only thing that I think you and I do different. Then I think we both roll them RAO. We do our solid column shot where they drink RAO, looking for motility, looking at does it empty. I don't know if you do this. This is a trick that one of our radiologists taught us is for hiatal hernia, have them taking a big deep breath and hold it as that last swallow goes through to see if you can trigger a sliding hiatal hernia, a really beautiful shot skis ring for anyone who's listening. That breath hold is amazing. Or the A mucosal ring, being able to see that. And then if we're doing the marshmallow bagel, we both give them the marshmallow bagel at that time. And then the water siphon test. Um, One thing that I do tell the technologist is make sure that you get them completely flat when we go back onto our back because they have a habit of wanting to put them in that immediate RPO position. The issue with that is you never allow the contrast to fully go to the fundus of the stomach. And so your water siphon test is not going to be as right. dense or as clear or right. even as well visualized. You you can't reflux anything if there's nothing to reflux, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So you got to put the contrast back in the dependent fundus. Then you can check. You can do a, a water siphon check. I do a water siphon with everybody. Yeah. Um, yeah, I do too. Uh, the only time I don't is if they spontaneously reflux. You mm-hmm. often see when they're rolling around on the table or they're laying on their belly, increasing that abdominal pressure you're going to have reflux shoot up. And obviously, if you see it spontaneously, you know you're probably going to elicit it. The radiologists I work with like to know quantity, if it's trace, small, moderate, large, you know, severe, mild. Um, Moving forward, one thing that I'll tell our listeners that I also learned from Reese was the rolling the patient whenever they're going to spot. A lot of times technologists, and especially if they don't really know or are familiar with that process, laying them on that left side for a good two minutes and then rolling them back and getting that really good terminal ilium Mm -hmm. without having to apply all that pressure to the abdomen to really separate it. I mean, you still add that pressure because you want to separate that mucosa. Mm -hmm. Being able to have it just kind of stick out there for you like a sore thumb, an easy target, just makes life so much better. And getting those beautiful, beautiful terminal iliums every time. Not only does it just like pop right out at you, you don't even have to try uh, mm-hmm. a lot of the time. It decreases the fluoro time that you're trying to hunt for it. And the same thing with, with, with a paracentesis, even if you're scanning a patient and be like, oh, there's just a little bit of fluid here. What do you do? You roll the patient. You roll them. Yeah, you roll them. Have that fluid shift around. The thing you have to remember is the intestines are semi-mobile. Being able to manipulate the anatomy to get better pictures and better diagnostic quality of the exam you're performing just by waiting a minute or two with a patient in a left lateral, do it. Try it out. They're sitting there laying on their left side. Start by just rolling them back to an LPO. Check with fluoro to see if it's opened up. It's been amazing. I mean, it's been amazing for the technologists and especially giving them that pride in understanding what they're doing and having that learning. I think that's been one of the most, for me, rewarding aspects of being an RA is helping the technologists that are around me to learn some of the things that I've learned over the years that other technologists and radiologists have shared with me. And then making a really strong department, I think has been probably one of the most rewarding things in my career. Yeah. 
I don't think that fluoroscopy was ever going to not exist. I know in the capacity that I've always been doing it as an RA, fluoro's always been very prominent. I don't know if it's just been the facilities that I work at or because I'm there that it's able to be more prominent, but it always has been, you know, so it's always been a pretty constant, at least in my career path. And so that was kind of why I wanted to have this conversation, because I think it is still very prominent and something that a lot of us focus on in our careers, as well as the interventional side. Fluoroscopy is just a really easy one for everyone to relate to, because it is the start, like I said in the beginning, of where all of our careers kind of come together. Yeah, it's been a busy month. It has been. I would say the last month has been busy for, for us. And we've had some delays. We apologize for that. It's not intentional. We are trying very hard to keep the quality of episodes at a high standard for you. So bear with us. But we appreciate you coming on and listening. We do want to do more of these one-on-one episodes where we talk about the tips and tricks and troubleshooting and issues that we have. We're open to um, having a conversation on whatever you suggest as well. Or if you want to know what we've come across in our career path, obviously, if we don't know, we can find someone who does. So reach out to us. Let us know if there's something else you'd like to hear of. Obviously, there's more than floor than just GI tract. There's other things we do as well. I'd like to share some of my tips and tricks. Let us know. We'd love to bring you on and share with everyone else too. Yes, I think it's always fun to kind of talk about how we do different things. One of the things that I love about going to the conferences is talking to other people, learning how they do things, how they do things differently, how they communicate. What are they doing in their practice that we're not incorporating where we're currently at? You know, what are some things that helps your departments flow? You know, I know right now, as we're talking about, you know, the show and putting things out and one, trying to reconnect with each other, but also having all these people that are coming on, was also taking time to do what we enjoy. And that was attending conferences. I know that both of us love to attend the conferences. We love to network. I think that we were able to do that this year. But unfortunately, to do that, we had to kind of step aside a little bit, but still getting to meet our cohort where they're at. And then also getting to lecture on who the RA is and what it is that we do you know, so, and the importance of advocating. So we kind of got pulled in a couple of different directions, both of us simultaneously. So I do appreciate our listeners for allowing us that opportunity to maybe skip on a podcast, to be able to go meet people where they're at in person and do the very thing that we talk about going to these conferences. You know, we had to take our own advice. Mm -hmm. Some of us did it in Vegas while the others of us (laughs) did not. You know what? I'm not going to comment on that. I'm not going to say that I'm upset about it, Reese. I hope that you enjoyed your time because I will be going next year. This is true. I strongly encourage our listeners, like if you haven't already, go. It's really cool. It's a really neat way to go ahead and knock out some CEUs, get to meet Mm -hmm. some people who are like-minded and really enjoy doing the same thing that you're currently in. So go check them out. Marceline, I want to thank you for stepping away from your busy schedule to hang out with me one-on-one. I know you got another lecture to prepare for. So I do. I think there may be some listeners who recently saw Marceline give a lecture, but she's got another one here in just a few short days. So join us next mm-hmm. time. We appreciate you listening. Go check out the other episodes if you have not already. Uh, we do have our website. You can contact us through at www.collaborationra.com or go check us out on social media. Uh, We're on the LinkedIn primarily, but we do have 
Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. The other thing that I would like for our listeners to know is that this was just kind of a rare treat. We do still have a backlog of people that are coming on. Yeah, we have more coming. It's just that Marceline and I really have, have wanted to do this for a while. So we actually took the time and opportunity to do it. So stay tuned. Mm-hmm. Marceline, thanks. Thank you, Reese. To our listeners, we'll see y'all next week. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Collaboration RA. Remember to find us on our website at www.collaborationra.com. There you'll find our social media accounts. Give us a like and give us a share. We look forward to your support and thank you for tuning in. Thank you.